Good morning. Good to see all of you and uh, those of you who are watching online, on demand, as well as live streaming right now. Welcome. Uh, another super, super cold Sunday. <laughs> and my heat went out last night at uh, 9 o'clock. And uh, technician was there till 2 when he went to get another part. I said, just leave the door open. I'm going to bed. Uh, so I'm slightly awake right now. And the heat's still not working, but it should be soon. We've got fireplaces, fortunately, and uh, gas fireplaces. They're, they're helping a lot. Um, also, interesting weekend because uh, really thankful for Sean, who was leading worship today, because uh, we basically, uh, with COVID, family things, or family with COVID, uh, seven potential worship leaders could not worship, <laughs> lead worship this week. And on Friday afternoon, we, we got a hold of Sean. So if you're having that happen in your workplaces and places like that, man, it, it hit us in a big way this weekend, but so thankful, and he's doing such a great job. So, so thankful for that. All right, so uh, when you came in, you got uh, with your worship program a little card uh, like this, and uh, this is a little tool for you. This is not for you to turn in, all right? Uh, it's not for you to turn in. I want to make sure everybody heard that if your mind is wandering. This is for you. It's a tool. And it's a tool where you can uh, figure out what percentage of your uh, income you want to give away, not just to Five Oaks, but to other organizations, or if you're visiting from another church, your home church. And uh, one of the things that we try to encourage, one of the reasons we have this is to be able to uh, especially if you're wanting to grow in that area, to take the one out from last year, see if you survived <laughs> with your giving, how did you do with your giving, and then grow in, that, in the direction that you want to go. So this is just a great, great way of doing that. Put it you know, in a place where, where you're going to see it on a regular basis or where you can look at it next year. Um, so I ran into a Five Oaks member in the parking lot of Costco just the other day. And she said, uh, she came over, we were talking a little bit, and she goes, oh, I'm so glad I get to talk to you. Because my daughter and I were just talking today about we need to go back to passing the plates on the weekends. And we need to go back to passing the plates because our children are not seeing us give, and we need to be discipling them that. And uh, I, I thought for a moment, and I said, well, if I remember correctly, we were passing the plates before, and nobody was putting anything in. And it's not because they weren't giving. It's because about 70% of our folks give online automatically or give online not automatically or send it in the mail, that kind of a thing. I said, so I resonate with what you're saying 100%, but your solution is not a real solution. <laughs> and, and she's like, oh. Well, we at least need to talk about it. I said, I'm going to tell your story. I'm going to tell your story this week. So, yes, we do need to because that's one of the areas that's really important in discipleship, especially if you look at how much Jesus talked about money and stewardship and finances and all that sort of thing and how it can really grab a hold of us and take us in a direction that we really don't want to go. And so this is just one tool in that direction. The other tool that we have is we do Financial Peace University. Uh, every year, it's a great opportunity. You can do a refresher, or if you've never done it, you can go to that. And it has changed so many lives. And so, and it's 
highly entertaining. If you don't know anything about it, just go online, look up kind of a preview of it, um, because it has videos and everything like that. It is highly, highly entertaining while it also changes lives. So consider doing Financial Peace University uh, this year. All right, so because understanding the Bible and our purpose in life doesn't have to be a mystery, we open our Bibles every week, and I want to encourage you to open your Bible to Matthew chapter 19. If you want to grab one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, for those of you who are here, uh, it is on page 986, page 986. So we are in the fifth week of what will turn out to be an eight-week series on Christian sexuality. And so last fall, we did four weeks, and then we went back to our Roman series, which we've been working on this last year. We did Romans 9 through 11. Then we had an Advent series. Now four more weeks of Christian sexuality, and we go back to Romans, and we'll spend about eight more weeks in Romans, taking us from Romans 12 all the way through Romans 16. So that's where we're going. And today, uh, we're talking about singleness and intimacy, singleness and intimacy. And so um, if, you're, um, if you're new with us, uh, just to kind of give you a little bit of background, this, uh, we launched the same kind of series with our students middle school students, and then high school students on Wednesday nights last fall. They're picking it up again, I think, this next Wednesday uh, as well. And so there is a curriculum that's called Christian Sexuality put out by some people that we really love and trust. And, and, so, and it has all these resources for parents and videos. I mean, just an amazing, amazing resource. And they keep everything short enough. It's pretty packed, but it's short enough that you can... Uh, you can see it pretty quickly and get the lay of the land. And all five ochres have access to it. And so if you'll look on the sermon application guide at the end of the outline of today's sermon, there's some resources and it explains how you can get access to it. And so, for example, uh, you'll see some people like being in a kind of a video interview type thing, and they'll be talking. You can see the whole thing that they said and all of that, so you can, you can check that out for yourself. Uh, there are other resources as well, uh, one called singleminded.community, and, uh, and, and I forgot to put a resource that's really, really important for today's subject. Uh, Sam Albury wrote a book, Seven Myths About Singleness, about two or three years ago. Excellent, excellent book, and so I wanted to get that in there as well. So we're going to pray. Uh, if you want to uh, leave during that, uh, you know, it's a good time, good time to go. Uh, but uh, we'll mostly have our eyes closed. So this prayer is prayer of illumination, and we do this every week. It's based on 2 Corinthians chapter 5 today, so please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word given to us. And by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would reveal your truth. Soften our hearts and open our hands to receive your message to us. Shape our understanding and bend our will to yours, Lord. Let all that we do be for you and be for your kingdom come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I want to pick up where I left off on week four of this series a few months ago. 
And in the fourth sermon in the series, we covered marriage and sex from a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective. And the foundation that was laid there is really important for the following weeks, for this week as well as for the next, especially the next couple of weeks, you know, all three weeks actually, because we're going to be talking about same-sex attraction next week and then uh, transgender identities the week after that, and then the last week will be more of a general type of sermon on this. Uh, so here's where kind of the basics of that fourth sermon was about. We noted that what the Bible teaches about sex actually sounds weird <laughs> uh, to a lot of people. It, we, we know it sounds weird to kind of outside of the church, but it also sounds weird to a lot of Christians, and it also sounds weird to, would have sounded weird to a lot of people in biblical times. Uh, but we get our marriage sexual ethic from Jesus. That's where we get it. Because if you read the Bible, you know, kind of noted last time that if you read the Bible, it, it, the heroes of the faith seem to be all over the place on sexuality and are not living by uh, the standards that we see in the New Testament, for example. And we, you might wonder, what is the sexual ethic then? And Jesus takes us in Matthew 19 back to Genesis 1 and 2. And when you go back to Genesis 1 and 2, here are three things among many that you get. One is that marriage is meant to be a lifetime commitment, that marriage is meant to be between one man and one woman, and that sex is meant to be experienced exclusively in marriage. And, um, and those, you know, like I said, for a lot of the people in the Bible, that really been, would have been very weird. But it's based on what God's intention was in creation, what he created us for, what he designed us for. So just how weird people think these basic ideas are, especially these days, is captured really well by a talk by Sam Albury, and he gave at a conference on singleness. So Sam Albury is 43 years old and single and celibate, and you can, uh, like I said, you can ac access what I'm going to show you at singleminded.community. And um, so he's talking in the example that I want to give you right now, he's talking about how, he doesn't use the word weird, but how so oftentimes the Christian sexual ethic is just considered outlandish uh, in our world. And he does so by offering examples from two different movies, the first one being The 40-Year-Old Virgin. So the Sam Alvary clips, we don't have, unfortunately, we don't have uh, closed caption, uh, and he's got an accent, so those of you who have a little bit of trouble hearing might have trouble with this, so I want to set it up for you there. But let's watch Sam Alvary. Let me give you two um, examples of that. Uh, the first is the movie The 40-Year-Old Virgin, and the title of it tells you this is a comedy, because the idea of being 40 years old and a virgin is comical. And I'm not wishing to spoil the movie, but it's been out for, like, ages, so if you haven't seen it by now. <laughs> uh, the happy ending is when, thankfully, at last he loses his virginity and joins the rest of grown-up humanity. Um, there's another movie, I've not seen this one, but it's called 40 Days and 40 Nights. And the, the tagline for the movie is this, one man is about to do the unthinkable. What's that going to be? 
no sex whatsoever for 40 days and 40 nights. Forty days and forty nights, that's a month and a half, right? <laughs> I'm 43 years old, someone can tell me how many units of forty days and forty nights that is. And what on earth does that make me? If that's unthinkable to go for six weeks without sex, then we are some kind of... I don't even know where we begin with how unthinkable we are. It's kind of some exponential level of unthinkableness. Whatever the basic unit of unthinkableness is, we're beyond infinity. <laughs> I remember someone coming up to me once and saying, you're a bit like a unicorn, really, aren't you? <laughs> I thought, well, I've, I think I've had worse than that. <laughs> and they said, I mean, I've heard, of I've heard of people like you. I just never thought I'd meet one. All right, so, of course, the historical Christian view of marriage and sex that Jesus outlines in Matthew 19, we'll look at that in just a few moments, has serious implications for people who are single and following Christ. It has implications for uh, the God-given single person's sexual desires. Will, you know, Will those desires go unfulfilled, and what will be done with those desires are the questions that arise. But it goes way beyond sexual desires. The implications go deeper and hit the desire to have a family, to experience intimacy. Is being single going to be a lonely, isolated life? Might be a question that people have. And the implications of Jesus' ethic can reach even deeper into what is the perceived status in the mind of a, you know, it, this is a great example of what, what Sam Albury was talking about, a perceived status, worth, identity, in a world where sex has taken on religious value, and in churches where marriage is oftentimes you know, the vast majority, maybe the norm, and to some degree, in a lot of people's minds and conversations, it comes out, the expectation for everybody, are single people relegated to a second-class status or to be people to be pitied? So to kind of pull that together, here's, here's the big question. Are people who are single for their lifetimes, in some senses, doomed to miss out on intimacy to be relegated to second-class status, and to live unfulfilled lives? If your answer is, of course not, and I would hope that is your answer, then how do we keep that from actually happening in reality, in the way that we, we act, in the way that we speak? Married people and single people play an equally important role in this. So Jesus and the Bible show us that people who are single are not doomed to miss out on intimacy uh, or to, be, to a second-class status or to living an unfulfilled life. That's not to say that there might not be some grieving and some sense of loss, um, but it doesn't mean that, that singles, single adults are, are doomed. 
Jesus in the Bible show the way to intimacy, the way to worth, the way to fulfillment, even without sex and even without marriage. So just to get this out of the way, I'm married. <laughs> and I got married when I was 21. So in my preparation and research for this sermon, I leaned heavily on biblically informed, committed Christ followers who are single that have written and said lots on singleness and intimacy, people like Sam Alberry. So uh, we're going to hear from some of them today via video. I'm going to bring them in to the sermon at various points. I benefited from their wisdom. I benefited from wisdom of people who are unmarried um, that I know that are friends, uh, fellow church uh, members, brothers and sisters in Christ. I benefited from uh, uh, my mother and my grandmother. My mother spent the vast majority of her life, she was maybe married for four years. I never met my dad. She raised me as a single mom. Uh, her mother helped raise me. Her husband died when she was eight, when my mother was eight. And uh, she remarried about 12 years later, and he died six months later. So she... Um, she lived the majority of her life as a single adult. And then there are two of my favorite single people who learned from, who I've learned from, who never married and lived amazing lives, Jesus and the Apostle Paul. <laughs> all right, so um, we all have that one in common. So the Bible shows us that for single people who follow Christ, living a full and fulfilling life, including experiencing intimacy with others, it's going to require really overcoming a lot of false narratives that are oftentimes in society and oftentimes uh, even in the church. False narrative is a story that's not true. We live in stories. We talk about living in the story of God here at Five Oaks all the time. And so we live in stories in our, in our minds and live that out, and it plays a, a big part in how you know, what we believe to be true plays a big part in how we live out our lives. So we're going to look at four false narratives that relate to singleness and intimacy uh, today. And the first one is this. Sex means nothing and everything at the same time. That's one of the false narratives. Sex means nothing and everything at the same time. So that, that phrase I got from um, an article by Julie Slattery. And here's a little snippet from that article. It says, she says, in our day, sex means nothing and everything at the same time. On the one hand, the culture presents your sexual choices to be as non-consequential as what you choose to eat. Sexuality has been gutted of spiritual and relational significance. At the same time, sex has been linked with your identity, your maturity, and your personal fulfillment as a human being. Sex has become the catch-all basket to bear burdens it was never created to carry. And the Sam Albury clip that I just showed you earlier uh, shows the result of that perspective. In, in those movies, sex is nothing and everything at the same time. So what Jesus teaches in Matthew 19 about divorce and marriage and sex and singleness speaks to this false and really very confusing narrative that our culture hits us with all the time, that our uh, kids that are growing up in this, it's, it's all they know from the culture. It's all they've ever experienced because there's been such a sexual revolution that's run through our culture. And so um, Matthew 19 speaks to it. So I want to give you a quick summary before we look at it. So in Matthew 19, 
Jesus goes back to Genesis 1 and 2, to creation, to God's design, to affirm marriage, to explain that sex belongs only in marriage between a man and a woman, and to affirm sex in that context. He explains the convoluted history of sex and marriage and divorce in the Bible after Genesis 2. And he does something no other religious figure had done before him. He affirms singleness. Now, the no other religious figure probably relates to, you know, probably I would say, you know, thinking more in Judaism and Christianity, um, well, Judaism leading up into Christianity. So let's look at Matthew uh, 19, where Pharisees come and ask Jesus about uh, their debate about divorce. All right, what are the, what's, what's the cause? What's the, you know, what, what can okay a divorce? And they had a debate within Phariseeism. And he says, beginning in verse 4, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female. So he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. And he said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. That's, that's how we know not only Jesus, but then Paul does the same thing, and other writers in the New Testament, they just keep going back to, to Genesis 1 and 2. And they say, this, is, this is, shows us what God designed us for. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. That's his answer to their question. And they ask a legitimate question. They say, why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, it's not saying, why did Moses command divorce? He didn't know. If a man was divorcing a woman, why did Moses command that she, he must give her a certificate of divorce? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. So the implication is, if they can have a certificate of divorce, which gave the woman a right to remarry, if they can have that, then Moses is okaying it, right? He's basically saying, it's, it's okay to do that. It's not, you know, it's, it's not outside of what it means to be an Israelite. So he said he did it. So now, now he's explaining everything from Genesis 3 on, <laughs> that God is constantly, uh, I don't know if it's the right word, but it's the word that always comes to my mind. It's, God is constantly accommodating our brokenness, our sin, the world that we live in. This is quite likely a protection for women in a patriarchal society, that they should get the certificate of divorce so that they can remarry. It's, it's almost certainly a protection of women. But he says, it wasn't this way from the beginning. Verse 9, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Now, there's a lot in here about divorce, a lot that's misunderstood about divorce. Um, Jesus doesn't overturn uh, that there would be some cases. He doesn't overturn that at all, and the Bible speaks to it. Uh, but we're not going to go into that. But the disciples said to him, if this is the situation... Between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. They say, if I am going to be stuck with that person for the rest of my life, maybe I'd rather be single, which is just the opposite of how Sam Albury brings this up. He says, they, it's like in, you know, the disciples are the opposite of, oh, it'd be terrible to be single for the rest of my life. They're like, it'd be terrible to be married for the rest of my life if this is the case. That is their response. So Jesus replies, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given, which is a kind of thing he says about there are some who are going to be my disciples and follow me. 
they're going to accept this, and there's some that are not. For there are eunuchs who are born that way. There are people that are born, eunuchs are people... The eunuchs were oftentimes people who served the royal families, and what would happen is they would castrate the men because they were going to be working with women all the time. So they actually took their, away some of their abilities and sexual abilities, and it was a way of protecting the harem, protecting, um, yeah, the harem mostly. And so, but he says there are some people who were born that way. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. That's the more common way. And then here's what Jesus says. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. So Jesus is saying there are people who are going to choose to be single for the sake of my work, my kingdom, my rule. And, um, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few moments. But what he's saying there is he's affirming singleness and he's saying, uh, and he's affirming marriage and he's affirming sex within marriage. So he's saying, no, it is not nothing. At the same time, it is not everything. And so he's saying, yes, a person can be single, never have sex, celibate throughout their entire life, and they will not be missing out on anything. All right, so second narrative, false narrative. Singleness is a special gifting reserved for people who have no desire to marry. Uh, you could add to that, uh, they have little or no desire for sex either. And this is an idea that's based on a misreading of Jesus here in this passage and a misreading of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, which has the, the biggest long discussion on this whole thing. We're only going to look at one verse, but in uh, verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, I wish that all of you were as I am. And from the context, what he means is single, like me. That's, that's what I wish all of you could be. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now, if you're familiar with the Apostle Paul, if you're familiar with 1 Corinthians, in chapter 12, so this is chapter 7, in chapter 12, he talks about spiritual gifts. It's one of the most extensive times. We'll look at Romans, where he talks about spiritual gifts as well, in, in a few weeks, Romans chapter 12. And so a lot of people have foisted that understanding of this word, which is a word that is, has a lot of different meanings, just like in English, and have taken that and put that in there as if this is a special Gifting, it's not a gifting. There's really no reason to believe that what Paul is talking about here is a gifting. He's talking about it as a gift, like an advantage, a blessing. I wish you had the advantages that I have. And as you read the rest of the chapter, you realize that that is exactly what he's talking about. He says, hey, I have certain advantages because I'm single. I don't have these other worries, these other concerns, and I can go all out in this kind of way. And if you choose singleness, you can do the same thing. That's what a lot of chapter 7 is about. It's not a good interpretation to say some people have the gift. Um, some people sense it as a calling. I'm not saying that Jesus didn't say that. Uh, he may have said that there was a, you know, some people are going to sense that as a calling, but it's not necessary either, Matthew 19. Uh, but even if gift means spiritual gift, the spiritual gift of singleness, there's no reason to take this leap and equate that with lack of desire 
for marriage, lack of desire for sex. There's just no reason for doing that. It's just, there's no place in the Bible that would suggest that. So this means that while singleness is a gift, it may not be viewed that way by those who have that gift. <laughs> it, uh, it may not feel like much of a gift. But Paul would urge people, and that's what he's doing in that chapter. He's urging them, recognize the gift that you have. Not spiritual gift. Recognize the gift that you have in being single. And, um, and it probably belongs in the same category where Paul in Philippians chapter 4, he's in prison. He receives money from, um, well, he's in prison, but he receives money from the Philippian church. And, they, and he says, you know what? Thank you so much for sending that. I can use it, but I didn't have to have it because I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in, sometimes when I have nothing, other times when I have plenty. So it's kind of that same, that, that's the way that I think Paul would come at it, not say, well, these people obviously have no desire. No, no, it's a thing that has to be learned is contentment. So there are a couple of clips from our curriculum that I wasn't able to get permission in time to play. I got a couple, permission for a couple of them, but the other two, um, I didn't get word back and probably it was just too late. So I'm going to tell you what they say. Um, so in one of the clips from the Christian sexuality curriculum, uh, one of the hosts, there's two hosts throughout their curriculum, uh, her name is Monica, she's single, and she says this, she says, I know some of you desperately wish you weren't single. I understand the feeling. I don't want to minimize your feelings or your experience. I simply want to encourage you. Singleness is a reality for all of us at some point in our lives. And some will remain single throughout their entire lives. That doesn't mean God doesn't continue to meet your, our desires, because He does. He just sometimes does it differently than we ever expected it to look like. Doesn't mean God is not meeting our desires. He's just doing it differently than we ever expected it to look like. The second clip that I <clears throat> wasn't able to get permission for is a guy named Jason. He's one of the creators of the curriculum. And he's married now, but he was single until he was 34. And in this clip, he's reflecting back on that time. And I thought what he said was really helpful for this point. So he said, we need to be honest with God. Throughout large portions of Scripture, you see people in the Bible lamenting, crying out to God. It's filled with anger and hurt and pain. In my singleness, I had to learn to do that. I had to learn to lament to God and tell him, it's hard being single, and I have these sexual desires, but I know you're bigger than all this, and I believe in you and that your plan is bigger than anything I could ever want or hope for, so I lay it before you. Um, it had to get to the place where I knew that God's plan was so much bigger than any one relationship that I could have here on earth. All right, third, false narrative. Christians who are single are incomplete. Uh, again, um, this is a false narrative, all right? Uh, not true. So I want to take you to a couple of clips from Sam Albury that I think will uh, get to a lot of this. And uh, what, what he's riffing on in the clips that we're going to be looking at is what he covered just before the clips, which is what the Bible says, especially in Ephesians 5, 
when it says marriage points us to Christ. It's a model. It's like he's talking about marriage, and then he kind of interrupts himself and says, hey, I'm talking here about Christ. I'm talking here about the gospel. And, uh, and so it becomes you know, really clear that marriage points to something. And so, um, and then one of the, one of the points that, that he makes, he doesn't use these words, but he makes the point that marriage points to the ultimate thing, that is to the gospel, to Christ and to Christ's love, but it's not the ultimate thing. And how important it is for uh, Christians who are single as well as Christians who are married to remember this. So let's, uh, let's watch the first clip. Now, I was taking a, a wedding back home uh, a while ago for a lovely couple in my church, and I was talking about the real marriage, the ultimate marriage that their human marriage is, a, is now a picture of. And how their human marriage isn't and can't be everything they want it to be. And so I said to them, listen, if at some point your marriage disappoints you, please bear in mind that's because it's supposed to. It's not meant to fulfill you. It's meant to point to the thing that will fulfill you. That's probably not the thing to put in your anniversary card each year. (laughs) Here's another year of you not fulfilling me. (laughs) But we do need to bear it in mind. Um, Who's who's seen the movie Zoolander? Let us us quote from the book of Derek. (laughs) Okay, do you remember the the scene in Zoolander where the the main character is a male model and, and therefore very stupid? That's the kind of premise of the movie. And they decide to build a school in his honor. And so they've got the the architect's model all there, ready for him to come in, and they're excited for him to see it. He walks in, and he's furious. Someone want to give me the line? Well done. Well done. Three times bigger than this. You need to watch it again, brother. So he is furious because the whole, the whole stupidity of the scene is he's mistaken the model for the real thing. And friends, we do that when we think marriage is going to solve life's problems. Just because you, you can't pick it up from there, and if you've not seen the movie or don't remember, the line is, what is this, a center for ants? because he's mistaking the model, and then he throws it on the ground, and he points at it, and he goes, um, the center needs to be at least three times bigger. Uh, so marriage is a model of sorts. It points to something bigger. We make a mistake when we think marriage will solve all of our needs that really actually God is the only one who can solve those things. So here's the next clip. So, friends, if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. It's not doing a downer on marriage. 
But it is saying, I don't need the sign if I have the reality. Singleness now is a way of declaring to our culture that is obsessed by sexual and romantic companionship that those things are not ultimate. And that we have in Christ the thing that is ultimate. Uh, That does not mean that our, our sexuality, our sexual feelings are now completely redundant and pointless. Rather, singleness is a way of saying, yes, I do have sexual feelings, I do have romantic longings, but I now realize that what those things are longing for point to a far greater appetite, a much deeper longing, and a more ultimate consummation that I do have in Jesus. So singleness is not a waste of your sexuality. It's actually a wonderful way of fulfilling what God has given all of us sexual feelings for, and that is to remind us of the deeper union that we will have with Jesus. All right, there's a lot in there. It's in his book as well. It's a singleminded.community, but I want to I circle back around just really quick to, to reflect a little bit on a, just a couple of things that he says there. So um, one of them is, he says, if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. It shows us that God is enough, that he and his purposes are not only enough to fulfill us, but they are the only things that will, ultimately the only things that will. And then um, this next one is it's not a word for word verbatim from the from the video, but it's from his book where he talks about the same thing. It may be word for word, but I just took it from the book. Celibacy isn't a waste of our sexuality. It's a wonderful way for fulfilling it. It's allowing or uh, our sexual feelings to point us to the reality of the gospel. We will never ultimately uh, make sense of what our sexuality is unless we know what it is for. It's a point us to God's love for us in Christ. So what he's going off there is, is not only that marriage is a model of our relationship with Christ and of the gospel, but it looks forward to the day when there's going to be a marriage between Christ the groom and his church, his bride. And it's like from Genesis 1 and 2 all the way to when that happens in Revelation 20 and 20, 21 and 22. Uh, it's all pointing to that. That's what marriage, its creational role is to point to that, something that's going to be real and um, not like a physical marriage, but something that is going to be, remember, the new creation is a new creation. It's bodily. And there's going to be a fulfillment that we're looking forward to. So a sexual longing, even when it goes unfulfilled, still is designed to point us to God's love for us in Christ. One more false narrative. Christians who are single don't experience intimacy with other human beings. 
This is a narrative that uh, the church often perpetuates, um, even if we would never quite state it so starkly, it's kind of working in the back of our minds a lot of times. But the reality is that sex is only one aspect of intimacy, and intimacy can be experienced without sex or romance. That's, that's reality. While it's important to remember that Jesus and Paul were both single, and that's oftentimes brought up in discussions about singleness in, uh, and what the Bible says about it, a lot of people can very quickly kind of dismiss that whole thing because we think, well, uh, one of those people you just mentioned is truly man, also truly God, <laughs> okay? So, and then the other one you just mentioned is like the greatest Christian superstar of all time, still. I mean, there's still no one who, who kind of in reputation, in life, and commitment, I mean, how many people have we known over time that were such effective missionaries to spread the word in, in through the known world of that time, number one, and number two, to have done it by getting beaten over and over again, getting up after being stoned almost to death, and as soon as he recovers, going to the next place, knowing that's going to happen again. I mean, it just doesn't, I mean, there, there are people that maybe get close to that, but so they're not the greatest examples in one way. But I want to I tell you a couple things to think about with regard to that, a couple of counterpoints. So Jesus and Paul are not only the superstars, but they are surrounded by other single adults in their ministry. And once, once you're aware of this, you can't not, not see it anymore. <laughs> but you, you've got to be, it, it's got to be pointed out to you a lot of times. So almost all of the disciples were single while they traveled with Jesus. Uh, we don't know if they married later. Peter was married, but probably all the other ones were not. As far as I know, none of the other ones were. Uh, think also of the close friendship that Jesus had that's just described us, this really intimate close friendship with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, brothers and sisters. How much time he spent with them, how important they were in his life, all single. In a few months, we're going to get to Romans chapter 16. And uh, hopefully... As you read that, uh, we'll remember together that as Paul is mentioning certain people, a lot of them he'll mention when it's a husband and wife. Most people he'll only mention one, and almost in all those cases they're single, most likely single adults. And a lot of them are women who are benefactors, they're business owners and they're benefactors of various churches. And so they would open their home and their finances uh, to be able to have, you know, meals and everything like that as a community together. A second thing is, watch Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, this truly man, truly God person. And what does he do? He is agonizing, and he surrounds himself with his friends, and he asks them to pray for him, and he's completely vulnerable with them about what he's feeling. And then he takes the three, as you read the Gospels, you realize these are his closest friends among the disciples. And he takes them a little deeper into the garden, shares a little bit more with them, and goes off a little distance and agonizes, agonizes in front of them. And they would have seen it if they had not fallen asleep. So, same thing with Paul. Um, read Philippians, and you see how intimate he speaks of people like Timothy 
and Epaphroditus and the Philippian congregation, how they have filled his life in so many ways that he says, you know, sometimes the thought of the loss of them would just add sorrow upon sorrow. And, and then we could, we could go to passage upon passage of Paul talking about various individuals in all of his letters, uh, many of them single adults who have meant so much to him. Um, and I didn't mention it, but the book of Acts, where you have Paul traveling with these companions who are single as well uh, with him. When Genesis 2.18 says, it is not good for Adam to be alone or for a man to be alone, um, and he creates Eve as a companion, it's not saying marriage is the answer to aloneness. You, you'll, you'll hear that in weddings. remember this being pointed out to me years ago, and I stopped saying it. <laughs> it's not saying that, that this is the answer to aloneness. It's saying that humans, fellow humans, are the answer to aloneness. I want to show you two more clips, two final clips, um, and then pull everything together quickly from the sexuality curriculum. This is Greg Coles talking. Greg Coles uh, is the person I quoted last week. If you were here or watching online, Greg Coles is the person who said that when he was 12, he discovered he wasn't like the other boys in his youth group. And what he discovered was that, that he had attractions exclusively to people of the same sex. And uh, that hasn't gone away, hasn't changed now in adulthood. And so um, we're going to listen to two back-to-back -back clips of his. So when I first came to the conclusion that God seemed to be calling me to be single for the rest of my life, there were a lot of assumptions that came along with that for me. And I assumed, for instance, that if I was single for the rest of my life, that would mean that I spent my entire life living alone. It would mean that I never had deep, emotionally intimate relationships with other people because I assumed those kinds of relationships were supposed to be reserved for marriage. It would mean that I would never have a friend to whom I was so committed that we would choose to live in the same place for the rest of our lives instead of just following whatever job offers we got until we died. It would mean that I would never get to be deeply involved in the lives of young children and see them grow up and get to be a part of them becoming who they were. I worried that being single would mean that I was condemned to a life of solitude. And it took a while for God to begin to change my heart on that and to cause me to see that actually none of those things are part of God's vision for singleness and celibacy. There's this wonderful moment in the New Testament in the Gospels. It's so good that it happens in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. It's in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. And it's this moment where Peter has said, Jesus, we left everything to follow you. And so I just want to know if there's, if there's going to be something for us disciples. And I love the way that Jesus responds to Peter. What he says is, Truly, I tell you, there's no one who has left home or fathers or mothers or sisters or brothers or wives or children or fields who will not fail to receive a hundred times as much in this life and in the age to come, eternal life. 
And I love the way that Jesus responds to Peter because what he doesn't say is, Peter, you idiot, you didn't give up a thing. Quit whining and go stand over by Thaddeus. Jesus admits that there is real loss and real sorrow in following him that we give something up. And yet what he promises us in return is something so much better than everything that we had lost. He promises us very concretely a hundredfold the family that we lose. As somebody who is single and celibate, I often feel like there is a kind of family that I have lost. There's a kind of family that I have said no to. And in the moments when the idea of the church as my family seems like a cheap substitute for having a wife and two and a quarter children and a picket fence, I don't think the problem is with Jesus' promise. I think the problem is that sometimes we in the church have failed to really live like family to one another. And I think there's an invitation here for all of us to step up our game and start to be more concretely family to one another, to actually open up the boundaries of our homes and our lives the way that we walk this world together so that we're not just family in some abstract passive sense, but we are really and concretely a hundredfold everything that we have given up in order to follow Jesus. Earlier in the sermon, I asked this question, are people who are single for their lifetimes in some senses doomed to miss out on intimacy, to be relegated to second-class status and to live unfulfilled lives? And then I said, if your answer is of course not, then how can we keep that from happening? And I said, married people and single people play an equally important role in this. That's what Greg is talking about there, Greg Coles is talking about there, saying we gotta up our game. We need to up our game and concretely, those are key words, concretely be family to one another. But it means first that we have to overcome some of these narratives. They're so toxic and so pervasive that sometimes, sometimes even in the church that it takes a whole family of God to defeat these narratives, to build new and better and biblical type narratives. Narratives that honor God, narratives that honor um, each other as God's image bearers. So when we believe what Paul and Jesus say about sex and marriage and intimacy and and singleness, when we believe what they say, we stop assuming in conversations that everybody's going to get married. Now, it's a hard habit to break, so we catch ourselves whenever possible or catch each other whenever possible and say, hey, that's not an assumption that we should have. We speak to our kids differently about their futures. We don't assume that our kids are going to get married. I mean, if what Paul and Jesus are saying are true, then we want our kids to make the kind of decision that the Apostle Paul calls people to make a decision. He says in 1 Corinthians 7, yeah, you, um, it's okay if you get married. But it's not the only choice, he says. And Jesus basically says the same thing. Do our kids know that, or do they just assume that we assume, and we do maybe assume, that they are going to get married? If we take the biblical narrative seriously, when it says that the church is a family, we act more like a family, we up our game, so that less and less people in the church are feeling isolated and alone. I think of the story that I shared back in September in a sermon about Rebecca McLaughlin, uh, who in her uh, little church in 
Oklahoma, is always looking for people who've come in by themselves and then finds a way to either invite them to sit with her or she goes and sits with them. She leaves her family and she goes and sits with them. And she says, don't worry, I sit with my family and worship every other day of the week because we do family worship daily. <laughs> so I can give that up on, on Sunday. Or I think of Chase Sachs. So we had Chase, Chase come here and speak back in the first series. We had him come on a Monday night. And he talked about growing up in an evangelical church as a same-sex attracted individual who is exclusively attracted only to the same sex. And he told us of being invited, and we've talked about it before, you probably you know, have heard it from more than one of us because it was so powerful. He talked about being invited on a family vacation with a family of close friends, a couple kids, two or three kids, they're in a small group, they do a lot together, and they were going to go on vacation, and they said, hey, we'd love for you to be part of our vacation. And he shared how, you know, he had shared his own story coming out, you know, a home of a lot of dysfunction. He said, I'd never been on a family vacation in my life. And how meaningful that was. That was a, that was a couple upping their game because he's not, as he foresees, he's not going to have a biological family to go on family vacation with. Can we be a church that not only portrays a biblical vision of singleness and intimacy, in our teaching and in our discipleship training, but also by being the family that God calls us to be for each other. Let's live in God's story, not the false stories that capture our minds. So we go into our um, response time now. I invite you to take your communion packet. And remember that it is because Jesus went to the cross, as he says at the Last Supper, this is my body, first the bread, this is my body broken for you. It is because he did that that we can have intimacy with God. We are adopted into his family when we put our faith in what Christ did. We're adopted into his family. We have all new brothers and sisters added to our family. And we have intimacy with God that we wouldn't be able to have otherwise. We are his. Let's eat the bread, remembering that his body was broken for us. And let's drink the cup, remembering that this is his blood shed for us for the remission of our sins. Father, thank you that you are a God who is willing to become one of us and suffer for us. And you did it for the joy that was set before you. The joy of seeing us reconciled to you. The joy of spending eternity with us. Father, I pray um, there are so many reasons sometimes we are, feel lonely and isolated. Well, you can be married and feel lonely and isolated. And Father, I pray that we would be family to each other. I pray that we would learn more and more the reality, learn it in our hearts, not just in our minds, the reality that you are with us and that we experience your love and your presence.
I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.